Hi, you guys. This is Liz Ryan, and this is the Truth About Work podcast, episode 17. A lot of discussion online this week about junk science in HR and management, and it came up because somebody asked about STAR interviewing. What's STAR interviewing? S-T-A-R. It's an acronym. It It's not new. It's been around for years. It's weird how these HR trends come in and then don't get dislodged for 40 years. We don't look at what we're doing to see whether it's smart or optimal or compassionate or anything. We just do it. And STAR interviewing is one of those things. It's a protocol. Somebody developed it. I mean, it wouldn't have necessarily taken very long to develop. It's just the idea that um, when an applicant, a job candidate comes to an interview, you instruct them how to answer questions. You want to hear stories from them. And so you instruct them when you ask them a question about a thing they did in their past, that there's a specific way they should answer it. That's star interviewing. And it's like the situation you were up against, your task, and so on. S-T-A-R. So, you know, I'm not a fan because I think when you interview somebody, everybody has equal stature in the conversation. It's not supposed to be an oral exam. You shouldn't need to say, here's how I want to instruct you to answer my questions because we are equals, you and the person that you're interviewing or you and the person you're being interviewed by. Really, everybody is interviewing everybody else in the room. Do I want this job? Is this a company that deserves my talents? We have a lot of questions to ask the company representative, just like they have questions to ask us. So the star interviewing protocol comes out of the mindset that, no, no, this is a dog and pony show for you, the candidate, to convince me to consider you for the job. And that's you know, a non-starter, as they say, for people who have choices and don't want to be talked down to. Somebody wrote to me and asked me to respond to their question, which I did. And the question was, but you know, Liz, is this really a bad thing, this star interviewing when candidates tell me it helps make a scary interview situation less scary? To which, what can I say, but why is it scary? Why would an interview ever be scary other than the idea in candidates' mind planted there over decades by, uh, you know, pop culture and the people they know and their own experiences that it is often scary, but that's a tragedy. That's dysfunction. When interviews are scary, what, and then you put in more process so they're slightly less scary. Oh, thank you for making the interview slightly less scary. No, it shouldn't be top down. It shouldn't be me throwing questions at you and you frantically trying to see what I want by way of an answer. That's insulting and ridiculous. That's what's broken. The idea that the company is on top and the poor little job seeker is on the bottom. We have to know as working people our value. And we also have to be willing when we, when we can. And we, it's not always the case that we can, but when we can to walk away from people and situations that don't deserve our talents, even though we've been trained our whole life to not do that to grovel and to say, I guess this job is good enough. And if these guys want to hire me, you know, that's pretty much all I can ask for. And I will submit to anything they ask me to do or say in the job interview, because 
who the heck am I? No, I'm trying to say, no, I've been an HR leader since the dawn of time and you have so much more to offer than you may know or be conscious of because you're not necessarily surrounded with people telling you that. But I will tell you that most job candidates understate their own qualifications and are, you know, very, very deferential. Now, they've been trained to be. I'm not hating. You've been trained to be. Me too. You don't have to be. You don't always have to be, right? The people who deserve you are going to accept more of you, more of your personality and your voice. And I'm not trying to tell you to walk away from everything and, you know, slam the door on everything. But we have to have this awareness that at times we can, when appropriate, slam the door. And I think it would be a very good thing to kind of expand your repertoire of responses when when you run into this kind of stuff. Because people don't know necessarily that they, they have permission. You can get up and leave a job interview if you want to, right? Or you can back out of a hiring pipeline and you can certainly bring yourself to the job interview because not everybody is going to hire you no matter what you do. Not everybody is going to approve of you no matter what you do or say. You just can't please the whole world. And, you know, I would be choosy about who you decide that you want to please. So the question came up about this star interviewing and that kind of led to a deeper discussion of junk science generally. Like here's this new thing and this protocol and it's so great. There's so much junk science in HR, you guys, and management, so much. 360 degree feedback, just don't even get me started on. That is horrendous. Let's make people secretly, anonymously report on their friends. They are not paid to do that. They are not paid to give feedback on other people. And if they would want to, and and if we want folks to do that and we wanna make that easier, we make it safer. We make it more pleasant, more acceptable, not less. People are going to scribble about you and then we're going to somehow aggregate that feedback and it's unverified and we don't know the relationships. We don't know the history. We don't even know the culture, the overarching culture that informs this feedback. There's certainly no dates or times or incidents that one could learn from. No, it's just generic, gross, like you should be more this, you should be more that. It's horrible. It's like something from middle school and it's not appropriate. And I've been saying that for 25 years. It's awful. I did uh, experiment with 360, sad to say, but not for long because the toxicity is well. Well, you know what? My coworker came up to me and said, you're doing this 360 thing. I said, we're doing it in this one very circumscribed, you know, application. He said, yeah, I'm not down with it. I was in a a communist uh, re-education camp in North Vietnam, having been brought there from my home in South Vietnam when the, when the Viet Cong invaded, uh, you know, South Vietnam in, in the seventies. And that's what they had us do is rat on one another's. And I'm, I, I see it as a divisive thing and I see it as a super heavy handed and trust killing thing. And I'm not okay with it. And I was like, wow, it took me a while, but yeah, we got rid of it. And, and I dis I denounced 360. Now I think it's awful in organizations that's how you want to build trust by telling people fill out this form about Susie and I'll tell her what all all you guys said what how would you ever improve relationships or have anybody even know whether feedback is 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 credible to them or resonates with them or not when it's non-contextual I can't forced ranking stack ranking obviously heinous gross awful largely gone discredited up the wazoo Thank you, late Jack Welch, for leaving that stain 
on business in the United States and wherever United States uh, business practices has, have been exported all over the developed world, certainly, and beyond. It's really, really awful to stack up people like pieces of lumber and say, you're better than this person. In what context? In what situation? When we teach and preach teamwork, 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 but nah, end of the day, it's Lord of the flies, every person for themselves. Get out of my face with that. It's awful. It's the opposite of leadership. And the list goes on and on. Junk science in management and HR, right? Pre-employment personality tests. What? Like there are these defined characteristics and we can just measure them through, you know, asking questions and, um, and, and get the answers such that we can make appropriate hiring decisions based on a test. How? We can't have that conversation. You know, so much of what we believe in the business world is not scientific. We put a veneer on it of science, but it's not the slightest bit scientific. It's actually closer to religious belief. Religious belief is really the only way to describe so many of the things that we've grown up believing in the business world because they're not based on science. They're not based on any kind of empirical. Like we do physics experiments as little kids, of course. Uh, I think my brother told me a kid does 50,000 physics experiments by the time they go to school. We know what water does to mud and we know that hot water hurts you and hot surfaces and we notice, we pay attention how our own bodies and objects around us and animals and substances and we get so much learning because we do it. We see how it works, you know, a lot of people at some point abandon that you know, visceral, physical um, relationship with science, with action and reaction and whatever. But we know up until that point, we certainly learn all through school the how the world works, you know, in a physical way, right? We get those experiments. We see them, we know how they work, and we respond to the world accordingly. But when we get to the working world, there's all this other stuff that comes in that's based on nothing. There is a uniform for business. It's a business suit and that makes you professional. That's what they call tautological, it's circular. Why is that more professional? Because it's what people wear in the business world. Well, why is that good? Because it's more professional. It's circular. It doesn't mean anything, it's goofy, which makes it like a religious belief because there are religious garments. I grew up super Catholic, vestments and stuff that the priests wear and it's all very, specific when you wear this and when you wear that. My mom knew, you know, the priest is going to wear this particular stole over his thing, the gown, the underlying tunic or whatever, because it's this, this feast of this saint. Okay, mom, you say so. But that's a big part of religion. And it's part of the business religion that data is so valuable. Data are everything. Data are everything. Give me a break. Business is one of the most emotional places there is. There's ego and fear threaded throughout everything, but we don't talk about that. We say it's the plan, it's the numbers, it's, it's data, it's calculation. Measurement is, is, is a sacrament in, in the religion of business, measuring people specifically. I'm so fine with measuring units off our production line and we have to measure uh, you know, scrap and things we end up not being able to use and the number of customers who call us and all that, but measuring people and then valuing them based on the measurements, that's a whole different thing. Deciding what to measure, whether to measure a lot of stuff or just a few things, how we communicate the measurements, how much we really care about the measurements and how much they're used as just a vehicle for controlling people. 
This is a very important topic I would like to see discussed in more symposia, right? We do not talk about fear and trust at work, but we pretend that business and work are run very algorithmically and very dispassionately and based on the numbers in the spreadsheets. Just give me a break, you guys. We know that is not true. And when it comes to shining a light on the religious aspects of business that the, the handed down from generations, we just believe them. They're not true, but we just believe them. Like the belief that they say, you, unless, what do they say? You can't manage it unless you can measure it. Oh my God, you guys. First of all, you know, manage is a very broad term, but in terms of positively influencing the direction of something, you can absolutely manage things you can't measure. And in fact, you have to. The, 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 how your team is feeling, how your customers are feeling about you, the trend up, the trend down, waves. It's the waves. We ignore them and say, nope, all we can do is measure particles. We measure particles and we capture them in spreadsheets. Well, I'll tell you something. 100 years ago, you guys, physicists decided that the, the particles were only half the story or less than half. They're the visible, right? The visible manifestation of the waves. Let's pay attention to the waves. You work in a company for three minutes, you can feel the waves, fear and trust and mistrust, whether it's political or not. Why are we talking about that? It doesn't break down to particles, so we don't acknowledge that it exists, even though it's everything everything right a lot of companies say we measure employee morale we call it engagement we do an annual survey just stop please that gets not oh, i can't topic for another day but i want to tell you a story about my favorite 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 group coaching exercise having to do with this idea of religion in the business world it's a story it happened to a friend of mine, a woman I know, I don't know, a long time ago, like say 12 years ago. And she said, my son Liz is gonna work in my office this summer. She was the CEO and the son is, you know, 20, whatever years old, young, in college, never worked in her office before, but he's gonna work in my office this summer as an intern, I'm paying him whatever, it'll be good experience for him and it'll help me too. Okay, cool. She said, yes, yeah, so my son started and he had his first day as an intern and um, I wanna tell you how it went. I said, I'm dying to hear. She said, well, you know, he was right there on time and he sat down at his desk and I said, okay, I have a busy morning, son. So I made a list of 35 things to get you started. You're not getting through 35 things today or probably tomorrow, but I just wanted you to not run out if you got bored and you couldn't find me or I'm in a meeting. So here's 35 things I want you to call and it's emails and research and research here in our company and research online and just a whole big parcel of things that have been bugging me or I need to get taken care of. There's some phone calls to make and, and just a lot of stuff that you will figure it out. Or if I explained it badly, you know, you'll tell me when I see you, I probably won't see you until after lunch, but if I have time, I'll stop by your desk before I go to lunch and I'll, you know, I'm going to lunch out of the office, meeting a client, but I'll stop by if I can and see how you're doing. All right. He says, great. Sounds good. So off she goes to her first meeting. Well, she stops back by his desk before she leaves the building for lunch. And she said, how are you doing? And he said, great. I need some more stuff. She said, you need more stuff? He said, yeah, mom, 
I made the, I did the 35 things. I'm sitting here. There's nothing else to do. I did boom, boom, boom. And I worked my way through. She goes, you did all the 35 things. You literally made like six phone calls and you researched all this stuff and you found out what this guy needed. And are you really? And he said, yes. He goes, there were two things I didn't do, but I'll explain why. And, and, you know, I did 33 things on your list and I actually have some ideas of some other stuff. If you thought they were appropriate things for me to work on. And I could do those, get into them this afternoon. So he's a really, you know, he's, he's, he's getting stuff done. He's effective. He's productive. And, you know, she's like thrilled because she really didn't know how he would take to office work. She says, I want to hear about the two things just out of curiosity that you didn't, you didn't get to. And he said, oh, it's not that I didn't get to them. They were calls, mom. They were on the list, you know, in positions number 16 and 22 or whatever in your list and they were check in with this customer, but basically mom, their collection calls were checking on the status of invoice number, whatever. I'm just not comfortable. Like maybe over time I could, you could give me a script. I could figure this out, but I'm not the guy to call and make small talk and say, Hey, how about a, how about that invoice? Especially when I've never talked to them before. I don't know. It's just, I wasn't comfortable. And she said, okay, yeah, we'll absolutely talk about that sometime. But in the meantime, let me go back to my office and get you another 10 things, at least to round out the day. So the reason I tell this story about the mom and the son is because it's very unusual in a business setting for an employee, especially an intern, on their first day to say to the boss, yeah, I'm not doing this or that thing, but I did all these other things and I think I did them really well. And the mother said, I think this is a good story for you to know about, Liz, because it's a, this is this generation now, end of millennial, start of Gen Y or whatever. And my son is a very polite, respectful young man, but he just told me, Mom, this, this one is not you know, where I am right now. I'm not doing it. And it wasn't, there was no attitude in it. It was just you know, somebody else, like any random person would be better at this than me right now. And so I started to tell that story in trainings, in group trainings of leaders to get their take. And you guys, it was crazy, magical, because 80, 75 to 80% of participants said, yeah, you got a young man who does 33 things in the morning, smart and on it. You give him the two things that he didn't feel like doing. Uh, we'll do them later or I'll have somebody else do them. That's the whole point, right? of working in a company, working in an organization. Everybody does, you know, a ton of stuff, but there's some people better suited to some activities than others. It's just, you know, you're not going to get mad at the guy and say, oh, you should do it. Well, except the other 20, 25, 28% of the room uniformly said that's horrendous. It's a job. He's getting paid. You don't talk back to the boss and you say, I need a little help with doing this, but I want to do it today. It's gonna be a learning experience for the kid, they say. 25% or so of any given leadership audience says he's got to do it. Kids got to learn. And this is the religion, you guys. He's there, he's on the job, so there can be no there can be no back talk. There can be no pushing back. I'm not suited for it. I'm not comfortable. I don't give a dang if he's comfortable. He has to do it. That's the job. I might have constructed my list of 33 items for the kid to take care of this morning at 6 a.m. or last night at 10 a.m. at 10 p.m. without giving this list a ton of thought. 
But no, it doesn't matter. Once it's down there on the to-do list, how dare this kid? How dare this kid defy the boss and even people saying, I wouldn't keep him. I wouldn't keep him because he reasonably, <laughs> compassionately told me, I'm not the guy to do this on my first day. Maybe I will be later. But surely in the world, everyone is not the guy to do every single thing that needs to be done. Surely we have that much say-so. Like, eh, no, 25%, you guys. That's the religious aspect. And the idea, the crazy idea that, like, it'll be a learning experience. Listen, some number of years ago, I forget, Ann Landers, maybe, or Dear Abby, one of the advice columnists, somebody wrote, it's kind of famous, and they said, my son says he's gay. He says he's gay. And, and so how do I tell him that's ridiculous, don't be gay, be straight? And dear Abby or Ann Landers, I don't remember which one, said, great idea, mom. Why don't you demonstrate how to change your sexuality? You do it. If you're straight, you just become gay. Show the child how it's done, and then he will have no argument because you will have demonstrated, this is just, just do it. It's a parable, obviously, but the point is very well taken. When people say it'll be a learning experience, that's painless for them. It's easy to assign other people learning experiences. We don't know what this boy's comfort or discomfort level talking to strangers on the phone might be. Why would that be something to overlook or worse, trample on, but that's the religious part of work and management. As a manager, I never have to have a learning experience. I can dish them out, and I will dish them out to show the kid who's boss, but I won't take on the learning experience that all I would have to do is say, oh, okay, well, let's hold off on the collection calls then. We'll talk about that later, but it's not the main reason you're here. Let me have you do some more research. There's actually some really cool projects you could do, right? What do we have to let go of to say to the kid, no, don't worry about the two items, dude. You did 33 in a morning. I'm thrilled you're here. What would we have to let go of the religious idea that the manager is always right and always in charge and can never be, you know, can, no one can ever set boundaries with the manager. That's a sickness. That's not leadership. It's not healthy. It's not healthy for the employees. It's not healthy for the organization's customers. And it's not healthy for the manager themselves to take the position they never get to or have to learn because they're the manager. But this is a religious belief that is widely, widely, widely held, you guys. And that's why I tell that story, to shine a light, to let sunlight in on these religious beliefs that have nothing to do really with how people operate except in the business world where we're so used to fear and control and hierarchy and religion that we don't even question those things. I want you to question them. I question them all the time. And I come from the business world and, I, and I've and i loved being in the business world, but not that way, not that toxic fear-based way that can never be discussed. You know your organization or any organization is unhealthy if the big thing is that you can't talk about the unhealthy stuff that happens. That's just like the biggest clue. And I say that to HR people and CEOs all the time because, you know, they'll say, well, things aren't that bad. And I'll say, well, can people talk about what's not working? Not really. Okay. Well, there you go. And that's why we do this stuff. 
at Human Workplace Speaking of which, I just finished a book and sent it to the publisher. And it's called Red-Blooded HR, colon, Essays on Human Resources as a Force for Good. Yeah, that's the book. Red-Blooded HR, Essays on Human Resources as a Force for Good. Because that's how I see it, you guys. That's how I teach it. As a force for good. To make an organization healthy and an amazing place to work and therefore to compete more effectively however they do that to succeed by being a great place to work right it's a it's a model in this book red-blooded hr i'll let you know when it comes out it won't be long all right got a question here dear liz you say people in general understate their accomplishments how do we avoid this Ooh, what a good question how do you avoid understating your accomplishments well it's definitely true most job seekers most people that i meet uh you know anybody on linkedin who has a profile anybody whose resume i see we start talking i ask them questions and it's way understated why a few reasons one is that part of the religion of business i've been talking about is that we value these weird longitudinal things i've been using this software for two years I've been in marketing for three years, like that matters. How would that matter? It's what happened in the time, right, that, that we care about. We haven't been trained, though, to reclaim, recall, or value our stories. We don't, we don't have them at the ready, even though they exist. They're, they're locked in there. We, we haven't been told that our stories have weight. So we tend to talk more, for example, in a resume or a LinkedIn profile about our um, skills like like amorphously out of context I have this skill I have that skill it doesn't even mean anything and we're not credible right there's no universally agreed upon definition for the skill whatever it might be negotiation administrative skills but this is a very disempowering way to talk about what we've done and what we know and but it's the way we've been taught so you could chew on that if you're conspiracy minded why have we been told to brand ourselves, to represent ourselves in the least powerful way. But then the other thing that we do when we talk about our experience is we make all of the validation external. So we say, oh, these guys promoted me, I must be good. I got this certification, I must be good. Instead of taking that on internally and saying, here's what I love to do and here's what I did at this job. It doesn't matter whether your boss you know, told you to do it or not. You did it, put it on there, right? Your boss. You know, your ex-boss is no longer part of the story. Or your boss, if you're still working in a place and conducting a stealth job search, they obviously have nothing to say about what you get to claim other than in that building or that, that organization in their space, which by itself is a really good reason to look externally. So I want to kind of like shake up your thinking to stop thinking that all good things come from your boss. Mostly that's not true. Mostly that's not true. A lot of really good stuff is going to come from you transcending the system you're in and the organization you're in and making a change and valuing yourself more highly than your boss did, which is what is going to get you valued more highly by the next people. You see, the corporate ladder is gone, or you could say it has morphed from being inside one organization to being spread across a whole bunch of them, but that doesn't mean that you are limited by what, how your organization sees you. Yeah, so a way to avoid understating your accomplishments is to recall your stories, your triumphs. We call them dragon-slaying stories, times when you came and saw and conquered on the job or 
at school or in a volunteer assignment or consulting, tell us the story. Getting back to star, right? <laughs> Their format. I want you to use that dragon slaying story format in your resume. And I want you to use it on interviews, but I don't want anybody to tell you how to speak. That's incredibly insulting. And I don't want uh, anybody to use the star interviewing on you. Come on, HR folks, we can do so much better. Recruiters, hiring managers, here's how I want you to speak. Well, why not just go all the way and tell me exactly what colors I should wear, what color socks, what color shoes, what color pants, what color shirt, how to do my makeup. It's gross. We have to see the implied, you know, power and control in that. You don't. How did I hire thousands of new grads without subjecting them to some made-up interview protocol? And here's another way to screw up, fall off my protocol. How dare you, really? How dare you think you're the right, somebody took their time, donating time. You, the interviewer, are being paid. That candidate is not being paid. They're sitting in this chair. They paid for dry cleaning. They paid for parking or whatever. And you're going to say, here's how you need to answer me. Your mom. All right. Red-blooded HR, how to understate, reclaim your stories. Uh, get a journal and write in it about you know what you're good at. You know what you're good at. But the examples of that might take a little time to come back to you. So you're going to do that. And, um, oh, there's a free download on our site, humanworkplace.com, and it's the one for you click on the box that says you want to be a, a thought leader, right? I want you to be a thought leader, and this download is free, and it's called 25 Reasons to Start Blogging, Podcasting, Writing, Public Speaking in 2020. I wrote it. The team was mad at me because they said, why'd you put 2020 on it? Now we're going to have to redo it, and we're going to have to remember. So if we forget, please write and tell us, Liz, you knew you should never have put 2020 on this ebook, and nonetheless, I did. So go ahead and get it. It's a it's a free download. Reasons to start a podcast, to start blogging, or just to get you thinking about sharing your ideas with a wider audience. If you never do it, at least you'll have some of these ideas to you know expand your repertoire. Like we said earlier, expand your the possibilities that are in your mind. I okay. What is a dragon slaying story? Oh kind of started talking about that. Dragon slaying story is a story about a time when you rocked it at work or volunteering or at school, and it goes in your resume, goes in your LinkedIn profile. You can tell these kind of stories in, uh, in, your, in your resume, I'm sorry, in your job interviews, even in the summary at the top of your resume, you can tell a quick dragon slaying story. What was going on that you had to act? What was wrong? What was the opportunity or what was wrong? Okay. What'd you do about it? And then why that was good. A lot of stories, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of folks, when they write their resume, they say, I created a, you know, a system for this, but we don't get the context. Why was that necessary? Why was that more important than other things? And after you created the system, what was the result? You got to include that punchline. The good news about dragon slaying stories, you don't need five or six of them per job that you've held Two, Two pithy stories actually creates a little movie in the reader's mind as they read it. Wow, this person did that. I see that now. I see the picture, the movie of this event now, what was wrong, what they did, and why that was a cool thing to do. And these stories are so much more powerful than listing your tasks and duties that literally anybody in the job would have done the same stuff. Doesn't tell us whether you did it well. So give us a story so we can evaluate that for ourselves. Then you don't have to praise yourself and say I'm smart and savvy and strategic and all this nonsense. That's our equivalent on the job candidate side of the DREC that you see in job ads, you know, 
the employers use Drek. I hate it. Um, I think there's probably a free download on the site about how to write a better job ad on there somewhere. But you don't have to, and I don't want you to, because it dulls your whole thing, your whole brand, dims your flame, and that's not you. All right. I'm Liz Ryan. This is the Truth About Work podcast. I'll see you guys next time.